Amen. Though the wrongs seem off so strong, God is on his throne. Amen. God is the ruler. He is on his throne. Uh, We just read this morning as we were praying downstairs, Psalm chapter 2. He who sits in the heavens, he laughs. He's not worried. He's not pacing around, anxious. God is seated on his throne, and he's ruling, and he's reigning. What a glorious truth that shapes everything, right? It shapes everything that we do and how we think. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to take it and turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. On Wednesday night after our prayer meeting, we were hanging out towards the end of the evening and we were talking about Pixar movies. And we were trying to rate them uh, in our top 10. We were just going through them. We were rating them from 1 to 10. There were six of us, five of us hanging out. And we were going through them rating. We listed them all, and then we tried to rate them. And and most of us, you know, agreed on the top three Pixar movies. But it was very interesting because as we walked through four, five, and six on our list, they started differing greatly. And sometimes somebody would say, uh, wait, you put that on number four? That's crazy. That's a terrible movie. And somebody would say, no, no, that, that movie means so much to me. And you would ask the question, why? And typically, it wasn't just about the movie, right? It was about something inside the movie that connected to an experience that they had, or they watched it with their parents, or uh, something that was involved that made them love that movie, not just for its, itself and its own sake, but for what it meant to them with all of the surrounding context. Like for me, I remember Toy Story is high up on my list because I watched that movie with my dad in the movie theaters, We loved it so much that we stayed through the credits. And as the people came by with their little uh, brooms and stuff to clean up the popcorn, we were just sitting there. They were moving around our feet. And my dad said, hey, since we purchased a ticket and we bought these seats and we're sitting here watching the movie, is it okay if we just stay seated here and watch the next time it plays? And the guy's like, yeah, sure. I don't care. And so we just we sat there and we watched it again as it played. And so for me, Toy Story means a lot because I got to see it twice in one sitting with my dad. As we come to Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem, which means so much to so many people. The, the, The Jews that were there around Jesus as he rode in, they had a perception of what was taking place. The religious leaders had a perception. The Romans had a perception. We've talked a lot about the triumphal entry over this last year. We talked about what it meant to all of those people groups as we studied it in the fall. But this morning, I want to ask the question, what did the triumphal entry mean to Jesus? What did it mean to Jesus? What was he thinking about as he crested over the Mount of Olives on that Sunday morning? riding a donkey, entering into Jerusalem, seeing the crowds, waving the palm branches, throwing their coats in the road. What was he thinking? The Bible doesn't explicitly tell us, but I think there are several implications from the text that we can gather to get an understanding of what might have been going through his mind as he entered into Jerusalem. And I think one of the best places to go to to see this is Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. This deals with end times prophecies. We've been talking a little bit about this as we've been studying the book of Revelation. But I want to read these verses in light of the triumphal entry. And I believe that as we study them this morning, we're going to pull out three very important implications that meant something to Jesus. As he rode in on that donkey... So many years ago, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, 
until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and it will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Father, we come before you and as we pray every Sunday, every Lord's Day that we gather, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. God, give us sanctified imagination to feel what Jesus would have felt, to see with his eyes, how he would have read this text. To get a sense of what it meant for Christ to ride in on that donkey into Jerusalem, knowing full well just a few days later he would be crucified. Father, give us understanding. We come before you, and and Father, we collectively, and myself personally and individually, I, I know that we are completely dependent upon you. If you don't work in these moments, then nothing that we desire to happen will actually happen. If you don't open our eyes to see, then we will see nothing of any eternal significance. So we renounce any form of self-reliance and we proclaim our utter dependency upon you. But we also, with joy, proclaim our confidence that you will work. You will work in these moments as we study your word. You will grow affections for your son through your spirit as the word is proclaimed. This is not an exercise that we gather together to just go over ritualistically every Lord's Day. This is something that will create in us a desire for Christ and a love for him that will drown out every other love for sin, for self, and will enable us with boldness to proclaim Christ to those around us. So work in us now, we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. This morning we're going to look at three practical implications from this passage, three uh, aspects of this passage that I think will give us an understanding of what the triumphal entry meant to Jesus. What did the triumphal entry mean to Jesus? Now, when Jesus does one thing, he's doing a billion things. So we can't definitively say these are the only three things. And again, they're not exhaustive in any form in the Bible. They're not in any list in the Bible. They're also not explicitly given in the Bible. But I think that we can infer from the scriptures some of the things that Jesus might have been thinking on that glorious day when he rode into Jerusalem. Number one, What did the triumphal entry mean to Jesus? Number one, it meant that past prophecies were fulfilled. It meant that past prophecies were fulfilled. Christ, through the triumphal entry, is fulfilling scripture. He knew the scriptures. He knew the Old Testament. He knew the Torah. He knew the law. And he knew the prophets. And he knew the writings. He knew Zechariah 9.9. Remember Zechariah 9.9. Let's turn there. We're going to be turning a little bit over the course of our morning together. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Behold, your king is coming to you. Messiah is here. He is just. He's endowed with salvation. So this man is coming to bring righteousness and salvation to you. He's your king. But how is he coming to you? Humble, mounted on a donkey. And as if that weren't enough, a baby donkey, the colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah 9.9 is a prophecy of the triumphal entry. 
as Jesus is riding in on that donkey on that Sunday morning into Jerusalem, he is fulfilling this verse. No wonder you could say, hey, go to that village, go to that town, go to that uh, donkey. When you see it tied up, just take it. And if anybody asks you, hey, why are you stealing my ride? Just say, yeah, the Lord has need of it. And they'll give it to you. Why? Because he knows that this verse is going to be fulfilled. He knows, he knows these things. He also knows not only the manner is being fulfilled, but the meaning is being fulfilled of the triumphal entry. Go back to Psalm chapter 118. Psalm 118. You know this psalm. This psalm is very familiar to us. We sing it often as little kids in children's ministry. Psalm 118, starting in verse 21, I'll give thanks to you. You have answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That's a huge verse. Messiah is going to be rejected, but he will then become the chief cornerstone. This is what uh, Peter, I just read this morning as I was reading uh, in the Word this morning. Acts chapter 4, Peter preaches and he uses this uh, psalm, Psalm 118, as he's before the religious leaders. It says, verse 23, the psalmist says, This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Not every day, though God makes every day. This day, a specific day. What's the day? This day of the presentation of Messiah to Jerusalem. This day of the presentation of Jesus Christ as Messiah to his people. Will they accept him? Will they receive him? Or will they reject him? That is the day that's being referred here. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad. And then they say, verse 25, O Lord, do save. You, you know that Hebrew word because it's said during the triumphal entry as they're quoting this text. And they say, Hoshana, right? Hosanna. That's what this Hebrew word is. O Lord, do save. Hoshana, save us now. Without you coming, we will not survive. Save us. We beseech you. Send prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's exactly what they're quoting. So Jesus knew Old Testament scriptures were being fulfilled. Zechariah 9.9, the manner in which he would enter Jerusalem. Psalm 118, the, the meaning for the entirety of his entry into Jerusalem to offer himself as Messiah, though he will be rejected. The reason why we started in Daniel, and I encourage you to turn back to Daniel chapter 9. We started in Daniel because Daniel gives us the exact moment of the triumphal entry. To the day, it was prophesied in Daniel 9. Now, we'll study this in greater detail later on. But Daniel chapter 9 tells us the exact moment that Messiah would be presented to Jerusalem. The context for Daniel 9, we're going to study this in our small groups because it's a prayer. Daniel prays, and he prays for his own people. Uh, they have been in Babylon for almost 70 years. Daniel knew Jeremiah's prophecy that they would be in Babylon for 70 years, but then be able to return back to Jerusalem. And so Daniel's saying, okay, God, time's almost up. Are you going to let us go back? And he's pleading with the Lord, saying uh, almost in, in a Moses-esque way of praying, right? If you don't let us go back, these people know the prophecy of 70 years, and if you don't let us go back, then your name will be tarnished because you promised that we'd be here for 70 years, and then you won't be letting us go back. So let us go back. It's a plea based on God's faithfulness, just like we prayed on Wednesday. You are a faithful God. You're trustworthy. You keep your promises. So when will it be that we get to return? And in the middle of the answer, verses 24 through 27 come, where the angel tells Daniel, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people, for the Jews, for your holy city, for Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Now, some of those things have already happened. Some of those things have yet to happen because this is a near-far prophecy. This is prophecy in the near run for Daniel, just a few hundred years out, and then thousands of years for Daniel. It's ahead of our time as well because this is entering into, as we've said in the book of Revelation, Daniel's 70th week. 69 of these weeks have already passed, but a 70th one is still to come, that seven-year period of time at the end of time. But here, verse 25, Daniel received this prophecy 
And it's given for discernment so that you will know something. You're to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That was given by Artaxerxes, uh, March 4th, 444 B.C. Nehemiah chapter 1 and 2 describe this. Uh, An issuing of a a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, until he comes, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So seven weeks and 62 weeks. Seven weeks, remember the weeks, it's literally in Hebrew, 77s. So seven, uh, a period of seven years. So seven weeks, seven years, so 49 years. And that's a reference to the issuing of the decree in Nehemiah chapter 1 and 2 to go rebuild Jerusalem. Go rebuild Jerusalem. The walls of the temple will be rebuilt by Zerubbabel after that. Go rebuild Jerusalem. 49 years after that, uh, you, you have pretty much the close of the Old Testament. You have Malachi's ministry and you have the close of the Old Testament. Then 62 weeks. 62 weeks is 434 years. 434 years. Uh, adds the time frame of that intertestamental period. You remember the close of the Old Testament and the opening of the New Testament, 400 years, silent years, the heavens are as brass, God is not speaking. So 49 years from Nehemiah going back to rebuild Jerusalem, the decree given to go back and rebuild Jerusalem to the end of the Old Testament pretty much. And then 434 years. Why? Intertestamental period, 400 years, 34 years, the life of Christ. That gets us to the very, very day. And there's a whole history of math and ways that you can understand. Uh, There's different calendars. There's a Persian calendar. There's Tishri to Tishri calendar. There's a session years versus non-accession years. There's a lot of crazy stuff. But you got to trust me on this, that it goes down to right around 24 days, give or take, that we're right at the triumphal entry. And I think if you do the math correctly, you get right on the day of the triumphal entry. March 29th, A.D. 33, when Jesus would ride into Jerusalem. So what's the prophecy here? You're to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to go rebuild and restore Jerusalem, which was given to Nehemiah and the Israelites, from that moment, the clock is started, right? The stopwatch has been ticked on, and now you have a, a decree that we know We know when, 483 years later, we know when Messiah is going to show up. I I personally think that Jesus had this in his mind as he's going into Jerusalem. He is fulfilling this prophecy. The, The prince, Messiah himself, is being offered to Jerusalem. And so Jesus, in fulfillment not only of Daniel 9, 9, and not only of Psalm 118, but also Daniel chapter 9, he rides in, on Palm Sunday, to the cheers of the crowds, quoting Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Just think about Jesus as a young boy being taught by his mother and his father, learning these verses, and them saying to Jesus, these are about you. We don't know exactly how these are going to be fulfilled, but these verses are about you. And for Jesus to grow up knowing that, for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem knowing, I am fulfilling the prophecies that have been given. The Jews thought, maybe God's abandoned us. Maybe his promises about Messiah coming, maybe they're just done. Look at our Roman oppressors. Look, we don't even really have our own land. Maybe God isn't to be trusted. Brothers and sisters, the triumphal entry is a reminder that God is a trustworthy God. He makes a promise and he keeps it. And if the promise hasn't come true yet, just wait. Because he never fails. Just like we looked at last Sunday, right? At the end of human history, the Jews as a whole will be saved. Why? Because God made a promise. And God will keep that promise. So, number one, I think the triumphal meant to Jesus that past prophecies were coming true in his riding in on that donkey. What about you? What what promises are you struggling to believe that God is actually going to keep? What 
What prophecies has he made in the Bible that you read and you think, yeah, that's just too good to be true. Or maybe that'll happen for other people, but it's not going to happen for me. Triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, is a day to remember God keeps his promises. Number two, I think the second thing that triumphal entry meant to Jesus, not only past prophecies being fulfilled, but I think that it meant present and personal separation and anguish. Present in the moment, personal separation and anguish. You say, where does that come from? And Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, gives us the time frame of when the Messiah would be presented to Jerusalem, to Israel as a whole. And then verse 26, how quickly we read over words in the Bible. Then, after the 62 weeks, the 7 and the 62 together, after that time frame, the Messiah will be what? be cut off and he will have nothing the joy that must have been in Jesus's mind and heart as he entered into Jerusalem knowing that prophecies are being fulfilled in his coming into Jerusalem he knows the rest of this text that he is about to be cut off and have nothing this This is a staggering text. The Messiah will have nothing. The King of Kings will have nothing. How is that possible? Well, it starts in Philippians chapter 2. You remember Philippians chapter 2? Paul says that Jesus did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, right? He didn't cling to that. He was God, very God, but instead of staying in heaven and remaining with the angels, worshiping and adoring him and praising him, he said, I will leave heaven and I will go to earth. It starts there. Having nothing starts there. He emptied himself. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. But it didn't end there. He was despised by his brothers and sisters. They ridiculed him. They mocked him. Completely cut off from them. He was rejected by countless followers. You remember John 6, right? All of his disciples leave. All of his followers leave. And the 12 that are around him, he says, are you going to leave too? And they say, where else would we go? It's It's not a defiant, of course we're not leaving. We love you. It's, well, I mean, we don't have a better option, right? Even his own disciples. Hmm. You're the best thing we got. Not not very optimistic about their following of Christ, and ultimately they're going to fall away. Think about the religious leaders. Think about when he was a young boy in Jerusalem talking with the religious leaders who he would think are his allies, right? Experts in the law, experts in the Torah. These people will be on my side helping the masses to understand Messiah has come, repent, the kingdom of heaven is here, believe. And as he talks with them, he realizes something's off. And then the entirety of his ministry, the entirety of his public ministry, three and a half years of going around Israel, his greatest enemies are the religious leaders, the pastors of the day that should be in his corner, and they're against him. Not to mention the supernatural forces, Satan. When Jesus is on earth, Satan must have said, forget everything else. We have one target. He started with Herod, right? We have one target, kill that baby boy. So he tries to do that through Herod. Doesn't work. He must have tried to do that in countless ways over the course of Jesus' earthly life that we don't know anything about because it's not in the scriptures. And then we have Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus is older, after the baptism, the temptations, If I can just get Jesus to sin, Satan is thinking, just one way, he ceases to be a perfect substitute. He cannot save anyone. That's what those temptations are for. And even those temptations themselves, some of them aren't even moral issues. 
Obviously, bowing down and worshiping Satan, don't do that. That's very immoral. And testing the Lord your God, don't do that. That's very immoral. What's immoral about turning rocks into bread when you're hungry? There is nothing immoral about that. So what's Satan doing? Okay, I'm not going to be able to get him to sin, but if I can just get him to stop being fully human, step outside of the limitations that he's taken to himself by emptying himself, if I can get him to step outside of his own limitations, then he ceases to be a perfect substitute because he's not fully human. All through Jesus' life, attack after attack after attack. I don't think Satan has ever attacked me once in my life. I think that his demons have, yes, but personally, no. He doesn't care about me. There are more important figures out there in the world that I think he's worrying about and and tempting and, and attacking. I think that there are probably demons in this room, angels and demons in this room. I, I believe that we are always under the constant threat of spiritual warfare and always aided in the midst of spiritual warfare. But I think Jesus, the entirety of his earthly life, must have had a target on his back. Just get him. All the way up up until his death, right? And Satan just says, throw everything we have at him. This is the hour of the power of darkness, Jesus said. They, They can do whatever they want. So Jesus is cut off in every way and has nothing in every way. But none of those things that I've explained can compare to the biggest way that Jesus was cut off. The most devastating way that Jesus was cut off. I mean, literally, the Bible here in verse 26, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off, and literally the Hebrew word is have no one. Not only nothing, separated from anything that can give him aid or help him, but have literally no one available to help him. Yes, his disciples leave, they flee in the garden. He has no physical support around him, but I don't think that's what matters most to him. Turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. This is Tuesday of the Passion Week. After Jesus is uh, teaching in the temple, John chapter 12, verse 27. Listen to what Jesus prays. This is Tuesday of the Passion Week. Listen to Jesus' words. He's teaching, he's talking to his disciples, he's talking to the Greeks that had come to see him, and he stops. He, He breaks protocol here. I mean, just imagine being there in the temple with Jesus, hearing him teach, and he just stops. He looks up to heaven. And he says, now my soul, this is verse 27 of John 12, has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. My soul has become troubled. He stops talking with the people that are there. He talks to the Father and he says, my soul has become troubled. And what am I going to say? He says, should I ask, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came for this hour. So the answer is no, I'm not going to ask that. I'm not going to say, Father, save me. Instead, I'm going to pray, verse 28, Father, glorify your name. And then the Father breaks protocol, right? He hasn't spoken very much during Jesus' earthly ministry. He spoke at uh, the baptism. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He spoke at the transfiguration. Listen to him, right, Peter? Hey, listen to him. Don't talk. You listen. And he speaks here. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. But here's what I want you to see. What Jesus didn't even dare to ask on Tuesday. Would I even dare to ask that you save me from this hour? No way. I'm not going to ask that. This is the reason why I came. What he wouldn't even dare to ask on Tuesday, he asked three times on Thursday. Turn to Mark chapter 14. Three times on Thursday in the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 32, they came to a place named Gethsemane. This is Mark chapter 14, verse 32. And he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and very troubled. That word very is attached to both distressed and troubled. He is very troubled. He was troubled on Tuesday. He is very troubled on Thursday. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. 
could die right now. That's what he's saying. What I am contemplating is so heavy that I could die right now. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and he fell to the ground. He couldn't even remain standing. And he began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. What he said, I wouldn't even dare to pray on Tuesday. He prayed three times on Thursday. Never, ever sinning. But the anguish was so awful. The anguish was so awful. He prayed three times. And at the end of the prayer, we're told in Luke 22 that the father had to dispatch an angel to strengthen and to help Jesus. The only other time that the father sent an angel to help Jesus that we have recorded for us in scripture is after the 40-day fast, right? Jesus fasted for 40 days, tempted by the devil throughout that time. And then at the end, when it's all done, angels were sent to minister. Jesus is in a state in the garden that's as if he has gone 40 days without eating completely overwhelmed by what he's contemplating. What is it that he's contemplating? No, it's not a 40-day fast. He says it explicitly. Verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. It was the cup. This is the cup of judgment, the cup of the Father's wrath, the cup of the penalty and punishment for our sins. What you and I have done in offense against God, God rightly and justly will punish us for it. But because he is so rich in love and mercy, he says, I don't want to punish them. Well, Jesus, I'll punish you instead. What does it take for God to conquer physical death? Remember, all Jesus said for people who were physically dead was, wake up. What does it take for God to conquer spiritual death? It takes the cross. It takes the cross. And my friends, we cannot even begin to comprehend what the contemplation of the cup would have been like for Christ. He's not afraid of the nails or of the whippings. He's not afraid of the mocking and the shame. He's not terrified of those things. What he is terrified of is being separated from his father with his father's wrath being poured out on him. I asked Chelsea the other day, if she could ask Jesus any question, what would it be? She said, I would ask him two questions. Number one, I would ask him what his favorite thing to make with Joseph was. He's a carpenter, right? I wonder what he enjoyed making with Joseph. Secondly, she said, I would ask him what it felt like to be separated from his heavenly father. And then she said, I bet it was scary. I bet it was scary. I don't know if you've had moments like that as a parent where you lose your kid for a little while. Maybe it's at the grocery store. Where did my child go? Maybe it's at SeaWorld, like some parents here who have done that, which I won't name, but it was me. <laughs> and you think as a parent, oh, my word, I lost my child. And the the feeling in that moment of fright, I mean, fright isn't the right word. You can't even describe the fear that you have. And then when you talk to your child, when you see your child looking for you, you realize they have a fear that is also inexplicable, right? They cannot even describe what it feels like to be separated from mom or dad. So for my daughter to say, I want to know what it was like for Jesus to be separated from his heavenly father on the cross. And then she says, I bet it was scary. I said, Chelsea, I don't think we can even begin to imagine how terrifying it was. He was slaughtered on the cross in our place, dying the death we deserve. This is amazing grace. That's why we sing that song. This is outstanding, unbelievable, amazing grace. It would have been an outstanding measure of God's grace, completely unbelievable, if God had just sent us to hell for a little while and then let us go free. That would have been grace. 
It would have been grace if God would have just sent us someplace neutral and left us there for all of eternity, though we deserved eternity in hell forever. That would have been grace. It would have been an astounding measure of God's grace to make us slaves in the new heavens and the new earth and to say, you'll be my slaves forever. You need to do my work forever. That would have been absolutely unbelievable. But what God does is he says, I will not only make you not under my punishment, but I will make you under my blessing through Jesus Christ, adopted sons and daughters of the Most High God. This makes no sense. This is grace that is unbelievable. How does he do it? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, you know that verse. God the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. God made him who knew no sin. There's, there's not one second in my life where I have fully and perfectly loved God the Father with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul, with all my strength. Never one second in my life. And there is never one second in Jesus' life where he did not not do that. He perfectly loved and obeyed the Father. He was tempted in every way that we are, Hebrews says, but never failed. Perfect obedience. And yet at the cross, God the Father made him who knew no sin to be sin. What would that have felt like? I don't think we can fully understand this. I think throughout all of eternity in heaven, we're going to try to wrap our minds around this. What would that have felt like? What would that have been like? For us to be treated as sinners is not a hard thing to comprehend because we're born sinners. We are sinners. We're born in iniquity. As one commentator says, we drink down iniquity like it's water every day. So for us to be treated like sinners, yep, we are. But Jesus didn't know what it was to be a sinner. He never had a feeling of guilt. He never had a feeling of shame. He never felt any of that because he never sinned. And then one day on the cross, he's treated as the worst sinner ever because all of our sin is placed on his shoulders and he's punished as if he lived our sinful lives. Back in college, I used to go down to Skid Row with some friends and we would take blankets and we would take tacos and uh, food that people would give us. We'd take it to uh, homeless people, drug addicts, uh, prostitutes. And we'd just go down uh, towards the end of the evening um, when people were at their most vulnerable. And usually they weren't even in a place where they could speak. And we would just wrap blankets around them and pray for them. Uh, sometimes they would strike up a conversation. Never really felt afraid. Um, knew that God was with us and we were sharing the gospel. But if I was down in Skid Row sharing the gospel and uh, the police showed up and they just start taking everybody, right? Drug addicts, prostitutes, murderers. They just take everybody. And I'm just thrown in there. And we all end up at the police station. For the people that live in Skid Row, they would just, yeah, this is a normal day. Cops are always getting us. For me, this is not a normal day. I did not expect to be handcuffed and thrown into a cop car. I did not expect to be at the police station. I would be sitting there wondering what all went wrong and what people think of me. I would be feeling shame even though I am a sinner, deserving to feel shame, I would feel shame because I would be looking, saying, I didn't do this, and I shouldn't be associated with this. What about Jesus, who never sinned in his life? I didn't do this. I shouldn't be associated with this. With all of our sin put on him, for those who would trust in Christ, all of your sin was placed on Jesus, such that he would experience the wrath of God against our sin in his person. 
What would that have felt like? To feel shame when you've never felt it before. To feel guilt when you've never felt it before. One pastor explained it like this. If you lived in a little village, in a little hut, about an eighth of a mile away from a dam, it's a thousand feet high and a thousand feet wide, holding back this flood water. You lived there for 33 years. And you have no fear whatsoever of that dam ever breaking. And then one day you wake up and you hear a crack that shakes the earth. And you see water pouring out. And you know, I am seconds away from dying. You're not going to be able to swim. You're not going to be able to hold your breath. This is it. As you see the full fury of that flood coming to destroy you. This is what Jesus would have felt. Never fear in his life over anything. And then terror in the garden of Gethsemane because he hears that crack of that dam holding back the Father's wrath and he knows it's either me taking the, the full brunt of that or it's my people. But we can't both go free. So Jesus bore the full brunt of the Father's wrath in our place. That tidal wave of God's wrath destroyed him. So that for you and for me, it would be as if we were standing in front of that dam knowing that this is going to destroy us and then all of a sudden the earth opens up and just swallows all the water and we're free. It didn't touch us at all. Not even one drop on our sandals. Free. Romans chapter 8, verse 32 says that God did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 says it's the son that God loved, his beloved son. Charles Spurgeon says that looking at the cross, it feels like God the Father loves you and me more than he loves Jesus. Now, we know that that's not true. Spurgeon knows that. He said it too. But in John chapter 17, verse 26, Jesus prays that the love that the Father has for the Son would be in you and in me. So we can say biblically, the Father loves us equally through the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. The bottom line is you cannot look at the cross and doubt God's love for you and for me. You can't. It's absolutely amazing love. That's why Jesus says, will you remove? Can you remove? Is there any other way? And then verse 36, middle of verse 36 in Mark 14, yet not what I will, but what you will. An old Puritan writer, John Flavel, said this. He was trying to kind of bring a narrative to an interaction between the Father and the Son over the gospel, over how they are going to redeem humanity. He says this, quote, the Father speaks in eternity past, and he says, my son, here is a company of poor miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now they lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. So what shall be done for these souls? And Jesus responds and says, Oh, my Father, such as my love too and pity for them, rather they should perish eternally, I shall be responsible for them as their surety. I, Father, I will be responsible for them. Father, bring in all of thy bills that I may see what they owe you. Bring them all out so that afterwards there may be no reckonings with them. And at my hand, thou shalt require it. I would rather choose to suffer the wrath due them than that they should suffer it. So upon me, my father, upon me be all of their debt. The father speaks up and says, but my son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay the last mite. You can expect no abatements. If I spare them, I will not spare you. So Jesus' response be, content, Father. Let it be so. Charge it all upon me, for I am able to discharge it. 
And though it prove a kind of undoing to me, and though it impoverish all of my riches and empty all of my treasure, yet I am content to undertake it. Brothers and sisters, if you love Jesus Christ, then you know he has spoken these kinds of words over you. I will take every single bill that has ever been charged to their account. He says it on the cross. It's finished. It's paid in full. There is not one debt that you and I have to pay on that last day. God's going to pull out all the books and he's going to see all the record of everything that we've done. And it's going to be covered in the blood of Jesus. And he's going to say, not guilty. There's not one sin that you will need to answer for. Because Jesus paid it all. And my friends, if you are here this morning and you do not love Jesus Christ, you have not trusted your heart to him. You have not seen your sin for what it truly is, deserving of punishment. And you've not seen Jesus for the, the savior that he is taking that punishment. My friend, you are in peril. Because just as amazing and awesome as the gospel is, the good news that you and I can be forgiven and have no sin ever held against us. If you choose to reject Jesus, then you will have every sin you've ever committed held against you. And you probably only know a tenth of the sins that you've ever committed. A hundredth of the sins that you've ever committed. And God will be just in punishing you. And so I plead with you today. There has been a way made for you to be forgiven. Turn to Jesus. Trust in Christ who has paid it all for you because he loves you. Palm Sunday meant that for Jesus. I mean, imagine riding into Jerusalem. Maybe even as he's riding in, there's a cross. Maybe somebody's hanging on it. Maybe not. But we know crucifixions were happening all the time. Jesus knows four days later, they're going to cry, crucify, crucify, and I will be cut off, and I will have nothing, and I will have no one. Triumphal entry meant for Jesus that past prophecies were going to be fulfilled. It meant also that present and personal anguish and suffering was just about to happen four days later. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is next Sunday. Just briefly, number three. Jesus knew Palm Sunday meant that there would be a future ruling and reigning of Messiah as king for all time. Hebrews chapter 10, or Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10. Jesus is glad to go to the cross because it will bring many sons and daughters to glory. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. For the joy set before him, you and me being with him, ruling and reigning with him. He endured the cross, despising the shame. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53, that amazing chapter of the suffering servant. Verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All of us like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all, verse 6, to fall on him. So what's going to be happening because of this? Verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. If he would go through the agony, he would see a product of it, his offspring. He'll prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, because of the cross, you will get the crown. Jesus, because you went to the cross, you're going to get the crown. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He's king. That's the whole book of Revelation. He's king. He's coming to reign, to rule. Revelation 20, he reigns for a thousand years on earth. Revelation 21 and 22, he reigns for all of eternity in the new heaven and the new earth. And this is the way that the gospel works. Before the crown comes the cross. Before reigning and ruling 
rejection. But once you have gone through that, once you have rejected your own will, you have died to yourself, then you will be raised anew with Christ. So my friends, I, I, I don't know all that Jesus was thinking. And one day we're going to get to ask him, tell me, I, I want to know. Maybe there's a DVD library and we can see the actual event happen. Or maybe he just, he just talks in such picturesque language that we can see it in our minds. I want to know what this was like, but I know this. As Jesus was walking into Jerusalem, as he was riding that donkey into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, number one, he was fulfilling prophecy. Number two, he was going to an agonizing death, being separated from the Father as God's wrath was poured out on him, not on you and me. But number three, Jesus knew that though he was going to ultimately be rejected as Messiah on that day, one day was coming where he would be crowned Messiah to rule and to reign forevermore because of the cross and because of the resurrection. Have you placed your trust in Jesus? Do you love Jesus? I think that we could all say as we stare at the gospel, as we stare at the glory of Christ, choosing that we would be saved so that he would not be saved. He would have to go through the hell and the wrath of God that we deserve so that we could be saved. As we see that on display, I think that we can right, rightly say, if ever I loved my Savior, it's right now, as I stare at the cross, as I stare at what he did on my behalf, if ever I loved him, make it now. Make it now. Father, we thank you for your word that teaches us. We thank you for our Savior who saves us. We love him and we want to glorify him and worship him now as we sing, as we ponder the glory of Jesus, as he substituted himself in our place, condemned in our place, punished in our place, so that we could be treated as if we had lived his sinless life. Forever blessed, adopted, granted favor by God our Father. If ever we loved you, Jesus, may it be right now. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.